Luke 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray to them, to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this. Or when, he took, when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. When they began to question one another, which of them, and, and then they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. This morning as we head into uh, this 22nd chapter, we enter into some of the most important details that the Gospels really could give us. There are great similarities between much of the Gospels. We have the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all very similar, sharing a large percentage of their content with each other. And then the Gospel of John has a lot more unique material to it. But they all share uh, the emphasis of this final week, this final day of Jesus' life. This is what we've been building to up to this point, the Passover meal. We're heading into the final night of Jesus' life. And so we've read a large portion of the passage this morning, 
but I don't want to get, we're not going to get into all of the detail that we could this morning. We're saving some of this for next week. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be discussing more of the ask, the concept of, of what's going on of the Lord's Supper and what Jesus is doing here in this new institution. And so we're going to take some time looking at just that issue next week. Um, so that there's this morning, however, there's something that is emphasized here in chapter 22 before we get to the actual sitting down for the meal in the upper room. And the issue is the betrayal of Jesus by one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. The issue is that this one individual, one of the chosen 12, who Jesus has gone up on the mountain, right, and prayed all night what he should do, and he comes down, chooses 12 men to be a part of his inner circle, to be a part of his group, and one of them is this man, Judas Iscariot, who is going to betray him. We've known, right, all along through the Gospel of Luke that Judas is going to be a betrayer. That's that whole, that whole instance of Jesus going up onto the mountain, that's in Luke chapter 6. He labors all night praying who he should choose, who he should pick, and he picks Judas. And it's known way back then, we're told by Luke, that Judas is chosen even though he is going to be the one who is going to betray him. So all along through this gospel, we've known that Judas is going to be the one who is going to end up betraying him. But Luke wants us to notice that Judas, who was chosen, is this one. There's an emphasis, there's an important role that Judas is playing. And in the Gospel of John, we get additional information. It was discussed in Sunday school class this morning that we get the information uh, in John chapter 12 of the uh, Mary breaks the ointment, or the woman breaks the ointment over Jesus' feet and anoints his feet with this perfume. And Judas objects, saying, this perfume instead of being wasted on Jesus' feet, could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And you think, well, guys, that Judas, he's really trying to look out for people. But John gives us the insight that Judas wasn't really caring for the poor. He watched the money bag and he had the checkbook. And so he was, he was glad to keep the checkbook full so that he could steal from it. And that was, that was Judas's motive. He was not, did not really care for the poor. He cared for himself. And so Judas all along has been this difficult character. And as we head into this last night, we are reminded also that the leaders are seeking to put Jesus to death. It's right at the top of chapter 22. The feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. This is not new information, right? Like it isn't like all of a sudden we find out in chapter 22, what? They want to kill Jesus? This has been part of this has been building all along for many times. His first sermon back in Nazareth, way back chapters ago, if you can remember, remember back that far of in the Gospel of Luke, he shows up at his hometown and preaches. And what do they want to do? They try to take him to a cliff and they want to shove him off the cliff. They don't like what he says. They are so offended by his preaching. They have been trying to kill Jesus all along. And so Jesus has done nothing to settle that. 
He has walked into Jerusalem. He has met with the Pharisees. He's met with the leaders. And all he has done has stirred up their hatred of them. They have been provoked over and over and over again. They'll ask him a question to try to get him in trouble with either the Jewish people. And he finds a way to show the Pharisees' own hypocrisy. Or they'll ask a question to get him in trouble with the government. And he'll find a way to answer that to show how the government really is under God and everything is under God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God. And, and all of these things, they're, they're trying to trap him. But Jesus is just stirring up their hatred all the more. And it's building and building and building and now we get to chapter 22, and they are desperate to get him alone so that they can kill him. And does Jesus know this? Absolutely. We've covered this as we're walking through. Jesus knows his death is on the horizon. Yet we see Jesus at every turn in absolute mastery over his death. This is going to go down as God has declared and determined that it would go down. This is going to go down as Jesus has designed from eternity past for this to go down. That's the first big picture message that hits us in this passage of Scripture. The first big idea is that the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Now that's coming right out of verse 22. Luke 22, 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Think of the, of the absolute time bomb Jesus is sitting on. He's got this great ministry. He's healing people. People are getting delivered. Uh, people are having all sorts of amazing things happen to him. He is... But in the middle of all of that, he has frustrated all of these leaders to this fevered condition... They're constantly on the prowl to get him alone and to kill him. In our minds, what's the right thing to do here? What's the smart thing to do? Get out of town, right? I mean, if this guy's got this nice ministry, he's got all of this potential, all these good things going on, and the crowds are trying to kill him, what's the, what's the logical thing to do? Get away from the crowds. Get away from those who seek to kill you. Disappear somewhere. Go hide. Go back to wherever you can. Somewhere until all the, all the, fur, all the fervor kind of settles down. And then, and then you can come back and do effective ministry. This is, what, this is the natural thought to our mind. Why doesn't Jesus just go away somewhere? Get away from all of this if everyone wants to kill him. But that's not what Jesus does. He has a different mission. The mission is one of coming into this world specifically to lay down his life. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. He has come to seek and to save the lost, and he's going to do that by the laying down of his life. This will not be some catastrophic accident. And I, I, I've got to say that point because sometimes it's painted in this, in this sort of way. That Jesus was just going about his business, being a good guy. Everyone loved him, but these religious people didn't like him. And so then all of a sudden he was caught and he was murdered. But thankfully God found a way to take this catastrophic accident and make it 
okay. Somehow, God was able to make good come out of this. But this is not at all some catastrophic accident. What is happening is exactly what was determined to happen before the ages began. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But then that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? What about Judas? Here's this man. He spent three years walking with Jesus. And he commits this terrible treachery by conspiring with the rulers to, who want Jesus dead and arranging to deliver him to them when Jesus is alone for a relatively small amount of money. 30 pieces of silver, such that when, it, when, it's, when it's returned back by Judas, the Pharisees like, we don't even want to touch it, and they go buy a lot of, they go buy some ground with it, the potter's field, but there, there's no, it isn't like he's got it made for the rest of his life. He's not retiring on 30 pieces of silver. He, he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. What we are seeing here in this event is both the sovereignty of God who works out his purposes perfectly and also man's responsibility. The orchestration of man's sinfulness in the working out of God's purposes. Both of these realities are going on at the same time. God is working out exactly what he wants to do and yet also we see the reality of personal responsibility that God in his sovereignty takes the sinfulness of man and according to his plan works those things out to achieve his ultimate purposes. The sinfulness of man cannot and will not stop God's purposes. God's will will be done. And yet, that does not give any approval of man and his sinfulness. The Bible puts both of these things forward. God's absolute sovereignty, his ability to work everything according to his will and to his plan. And yet at the same time, the responsibility of man for his sinfulness as all of these things work out together. There is... A real, this is a real problem in many minds. If God is sovereign and working his plan, well, then man can't really be held responsible. But the Bible doesn't put that image out there. The Bible says both of these things. The Son of Man goes as it is to be determined, but woe to the one through whom that plan is worked. Woe to Judas, who in his, the personal responsibility for his sinfulness is working out the purposes of God, but also sits under personal responsibility in that sin. It was a sin to murder Jesus. He was a man without guilt. To murder someone without guilt, to enforce capital punishment on an innocent person is sin. Yet at the same time, God in his sovereignty is perfectly working out his purposes. There's a sense in which when we think about these things, the only response is to sit down and worship. I mean, we can, we can and it's fun, I enjoy it, to theorize, to think about, you know, okay, sovereignty of God, man's responsibility, how these things fit together and work on a system. But at the end of the day, for our finite minds, it's best just to sit back and worship this God who performs his purposes perfectly. That he can take all of these autonomous, these, these, these creatures who have their will in rebellion against them, and they are marching at, against God, 
and against his ways and against righteousness. And he's so big and so awesome and so powerful that all armies against him cannot prevent him from working exactly what he wants to do. It's, it's astonishing. And sometimes the, the smartest thing to do is not to try to find a synthesis and work on those things. The, the smartest, the wisest thing to do is to just sit back and worship the God who is big enough to work all of these things towards his purposes. Sometimes, though, the spin put on this, as I've already said, is that somehow everything went wrong and the empty tomb was just this fortuitous result. Oh, isn't that a lucky, the, the grave ended up empty and isn't it great that God didn't know what to do, you know, but they killed Jesus. He had this plan and, and man ruined it, but, but now God has somehow um, made the best of a bad situation. You ever hear something like that? God made the best of a bad situation. No, <laughs> This, this, is, this was God's working all the way long. That is not the reality that we get from the text. God was not going to leave the salvation of sinners up to chance. I mean, you realize what you're saying if you, if you think that's what's going on. That means that your salvation was hanging in the balance and God didn't know if he was going to be able to rescue sinners or not. No. God knew this all along. God takes no risks. God never rolls the dice. He never casts lots. He never throws darts, try to make a decision. He knows what he is going to do. He was determined to save his people and he was never going to leave things to chance because it's not possible for a sovereign God to leave things up to chance. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't hope for the best. He purposes and he accomplishes. And that's why verse 22 says what it says about Jesus. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It's the same idea that Peter in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Peter says this, he says, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, there's the sovereignty of God working his purposes, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Personal responsibility, but yet all of that, God was working out his purposes. What's communicated to us in that reality is this assurance of a God who purposed and accomplished and who has also made further promises. If just as he was able to work out his purposes through the countless obstacles from our perspective, sinful man, all of these things going wrong, all of these upset, everyone against him, trying to kill him out of, out of order, all these things going on. In spite of all of these obstacles, what does God do? He performs his will perfectly. You know why that's good news? There are future promises for us that we want to be able to bank on that God can fulfill his promises to you perfectly. No matter what comes along, no matter how hard some outside force tries to wreck it, God is not up in heaven hoping that everything works out okay. God accomplishes his purposes. And that is such good news for the Christian that what God has purposed to do, he will 
do. As he was able to work out his purposes through countless obstacles from our perspective, so we ought to trust him and his ability to keep every one of the promises that he has made. Promises never to leave or forsake his people. Don't you want a God that when he says never to leave you or forsake you, he can actually make sure that he never leaves you or forsakes you? What if it's a God who says, well, I plan to never leave you or forsake you, but, you know, I hope nothing bad comes along that I can't figure out how to make better. No, this is a promise from God. Promises to return and to judge the world that every injustice will come under judgment. Every wrong that has been suffered, every sin against you, every trouble that has come against you, every evil done in this world will be brought to account. God has promised to return and judge the world. Don't we want justice for all the tragedies we see in the world, all of the, the, the murders and the, that are going, all the, the mass shootings that are going on. The, we want justice for the evil that is in this world. God has promised to return and to judge the world. We don't want a God who hopes to maybe one day make everything right. We want a God who will. God has made promises to give eternal life to all who repent and trust in him. Do you want your eternal security, your eternal life, your eternal bliss with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth to hang upon a God who hopefully can pull everything out in the end or a God who fulfills what he purposes to do? If God can perform his purposes exactly as he designed them in eternity past, even though the free choices of sinful man seek to throw them off course, if God can still perform his purposes, we should live with rock-solid assurance that he will fulfill every one of his promises to us. That's why it's so important that when we look at the event of the crucifixion, we see God, this was his purpose from eternity past, to save sinners, to save you from the penalty of your sin. He purposed it this way, and he worked it out as he wanted to. So that you sitting here today could repent of your sins, trust in Christ, and be forgiven. And not only that, that wasn't some happy ending that just happened to happen. That was what he designed so that each one of you, repenting and trusting in Christ, can also be assured of what's yet to come. That God who has saved you will not abandon you. The God who has adopted you into his family will not kick you back out onto the street. The God who has begun a good work in you, I'll use the Bible, Philippians 1.6. The God who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a good promise. And we want security on that promise. So what do we say then about Judas? I mean, it's... There's, there's this sobering, like, smelling salt that is Ju Judas. You know, smelling salt, the boxer gets knocked out, and they, they crack, and, they, and it wakes them up. Judas is a bit like that. He's this wake-up call. What we see in Judas is this startling truth. You can be well acquainted with the things of God. You can be well acquainted with the things of God and not acquainted with God at all. You can be well acquainted with the things of God, but not at all acquainted with God himself. Judas was in the inner circle. He was not the three, but he was in the twelve. He was in this group of those who slept, ate, played, had rest, prayed, ministered, 
with Jesus. He had a front line to all of the activity of Jesus. He was one of the ones that would have been sent out two by two to minister, to send out demons, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and that's coming near. Possibly, probably preached the, the good news of the kingdom to the crowds that surrounded him. That was Judas. He was well acquainted with the things of God. He heard the teachings of Jesus repeatedly. He had as much familiarity as anyone could have claimed. And yet all of that nearness to the things of God did not result in Judas being near God at all. That, I hope you're not falling asleep this morning too much, because that is supposed to be a smelling salt in our nostrils. This reality, this danger, this flashing warning light you can be around the things of God, around the things of God, around the things of God, and not be around or near God at all. You can sit in church Sunday morning after Sunday morning after Sunday morning. You can give and give and give and give. You can become a church officer. You can have lifetime memberships to church. You can have all sorts of religious things be well acquainted with the things of God and yet not be well acquainted with God himself. This is Judas, is it not? How close he was and yet how far away he was. People can spend their whole lives surrounded by the things of God and not be close to God at all. We can have all sorts of knowledge of God, about God, all sorts of knowledge about God, but no true knowledge of God. You understand the distinction? I think Judas paints the picture very, very plainly. So what do we learn from Judas? First, beware. Beware. Does your walk with God have you closer to him or just closer to the things of him? Does your walk with God have you genuinely closer to the God who sent his son to save you from your sins or is your walk with God just closer to those things? There's a huge difference between these two. Does your knowledge, do you have a knowledge of the gospel that you know the you know what we're talking about? Sinner, Christ came, died, was resurrected, repent, confess sins, trust in Christ. Do you have a knowledge of those things or does the knowledge of those things truly know have you? Are you gripped by them? Is that your story? Not just is that a story you know, but is that your story? Judas knew the stories, but they weren't his story. Is it yours? We are to look at Judas and beware. It's the difference of who can describe honey. I mean, you could sit down with someone and say, well, this is what honey's like. It's like a all the best of sugar melted down into caramely goodness, and then you put, but, but all the work of describing it, you might be able to do a decent job, but it's gonna be nothing like taking a taste of honey, right? The best way to describe honey is to go get Tony and a bottle of honey and a spoon and give them some good honey. That's the best way, and that's what we're talking about with Judas. Or do you just have a description of honey? Or have you tasted the real thing? Do you know the joy of the gospel? Do you know the joy of a savior? Do you know the, tr the truth of the forgiveness of sins? Do you know them as objective as these truth claims? Or are you living in them? Are they yours? Do you know the story or is the story your story? Well, there's good news 
for you this morning. If it hasn't been your story up to today, today it can become your story, right? Right here, right now, this morning, you can decide, you can put your faith in Christ. That story of a sinner saved by the grace and mercy of God through Christ's work, I want that to be my story. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to taste and see that the Lord is good, as Psalm 34 says. So what we learn from Judas is to beware, to, to test ourselves, to think on these things. Secondly, we, we, we learn that God does have his way, absolutely. We've spent a lot of time on that, but that God has determined a plan in eternity past, and even through countless variables and obstacles, he performs all his holy will. That does not mean that everything will go as we plan, but it absolutely means that God's promises to us will never fail to be kept. Beware. God works his purposes. Lastly, do not use God's sovereignty as an excuse to sin. Verse 22 says that, yes, this was determined long ago, but it says, woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. We struggle with this concept of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. We, they, but they walk hand in hand throughout redemptive history. We could go lots of places we won't this morning that look at the hand in hand walk of the responsibility of sinful man and God yet working his purposes. But sometimes we can look at that and think, well, God's in charge, so I guess I'll do what I want to do. Woe to the one, what does it say? Woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. The Son of Man does go as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The twisted look at Judas and they say, well, he performed God's will, so he must be okay, right? How can you fault Judas? He just did God's will. Jesus doesn't say that. <laughs> he looks at this man who helped perform the will of God and says, woe to the one by whom he is delivered over. What does Judas never experience? Honest repentance. There's no honest confession of sinfulness. There's no deep admittance of his need for saving and for rescue. And because that is absent, no rescue is found. We cannot fall back on God's power and perfections as license and permissions for disobedience. Rather, we must see how he worked all of these things so that he might deal out forgiveness that we so desperately need. So here we are this morning, I think that we should let the heaviness of the presence of Judas weigh upon us. I mean, there's a sense in which we could try to take this into a, a lighter, you know, direction, but the, the reality of Judas is heavy. And if you're never okay with coming to church and having things sit on you heavy, I, 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 I don't know, that's, that's part of the point. If we don't spend time here thinking about things of consequence and things that matter, you're not going to think about them watching Netflix, which you probably aren't doing, but some of you are. This is, where we, this is where we come to think about these heavy things. We should let the heaviness of the presence of Judas weigh upon us. It's hard to walk away from thinking about Judas whistling. Thinking on Judas takes my mind to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where it talks about the idolatry. Paul warns the Corinthians against this idolatry and he brings up the children of Israel. It's a great example of those who had been delivered out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, watched cross on dry ground. They were fed manna. They had all these miracles, the plagues, all of these things shown to them. They walked with God. God provided for them and showed himself to them at every turn. And yet what did they do? They had all this knowledge of him, but he was not their true 
God. They were not truly his. They turned away from him. And Paul, in saying all this, says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So here we are ready for communion. And this is our opportunity every Sunday to either, either go through the religious motions and be brought no closer to God. I mean, that's a real possibility for you here this morning, right? We do communion every Sunday. It's mentioned again in Sunday school this morning. Here's a real chance for you to be brought closer to religious observance and possibly not any closer to God at all. Or you can come in faith knowing that this is a meal of remembrance of what Christ has done for you, a sinner. Remembering, here's all the ways that I have failed and fallen short and sinned this week. Here's all the things in my life that deserve God's judgment. And what has he done because of that? He sent his son to take that penalty upon himself that I might be forgiven. Jesus, you can come by faith knowing that you deserve to be rejected, but remembering that Jesus was rejected for you and that his acceptance is transferred then to you. For all who come in that way, their eternal hope is secure because the God who worked out his perfect will to rescue them, even in the midst of countless difficulties, is the God who then promises to secure them to himself and to bring them into the fullness of his joy forever. Let's pray. Father, do your work in our hearts in this place this morning. We do not, and I pray, Father, that there would be conviction in this place. God, I do not want to come out of empty form. I do not want to come to this table, spend this time in prayer, sing this final hymn as religious observance, being brought closer to things about you and not at all closer to you. So Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts in this place to bring conviction of sin that we might come to this table in a worthy manner and be drawn near to you by faith in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.